Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. Last weekend, uh, Pastor Ray, awesome message on prayer and a, a fantastic kind of apostolic reminder of the dangers of prayerlessness. And uh, reminding me of a verse immediately, I've had a verse uh, kind of going through my head for the entire week uh, since his message. And the verse is this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. And it says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray without ceasing. Uh, when I think of it, when I look at it like this, it's almost like prayer is so important that it's almost supposed to be like breathing. It's this thing, I mean, obviously here he's not talking about, you know, you know having your de- devotions all day and not being able to do anything else, but he's talking about prayer being so fundamental to who we are that we actually are in communication with God all the time, in a sense. It's like breathing. A Christian who doesn't pray, it's almost like a fish who doesn't swim, right? And so it's, it's supposed to be natural to us. It's supposed to be this thing when you have needs, you breathe out your needs to God and you receive back from him strength and encouragement. And when you have stresses and when you have praises and when you need wisdom and guidance, out goes the breath, just like we breathe in everyday life, out goes the breath and back we receive from God. It's supposed to be this all the time dependence on Jesus. And it should be wonderful. Our prayer life, I mean, you look at it here and we can look at tons and tons of things. Well, it, let's look at another verse, Hebrews 4, this idea that the creator of the universe walks with us every day and invites us to come and pray to him. Let us then with confidence. I love that. How many Christians can't go to God with confidence because whatever it is, maybe shame, maybe guilt, maybe feelings of inadequacy, whatever it is, but we shy away from God there's this invitation that we can take anything, all of our needs and our burdens to God, and we think to ourselves, well, that sounds amazing. Like, the idea that he could carry my burdens for me, wow, that he would want to give me wisdom, that's amazing. Like, this is like this incredible thing. The God of the universe is with you all the time, and you can talk to him, and you can rely on him. It just sounds too good to be true, and yet how many of us actually take advantage of it? And, and we shy away in whether it be inadequacy or forgetfulness or guilt or shame. And then we read a verse like this and we see not only can we do it, it's not just a kind of throwaway offer from God. Hey, 24-7, I'm with you every day and you can talk to me. But if you don't use it, that's fine. We actually see him encouraging us. Let us then with confidence. Because of Jesus' death for you and me, we can approach God boldly, like my own kids approach me. They're never scared to ask me for anything. Trust me. They'll, they'll just ask, right? They just, they don't come to me and go, you know, I'm, uh, hmm. they, no, no, they just ask. And sometimes their asks are ridiculous. The crazy thing is, because I love them so much, that even when they sometimes ask for things they don't need, I still give it to them. Amen. Not always. And that's the kind of God we see here. Let us then with confidence come before the throne of grace that we may fi- receive mercy and gra- find grace to help us in a time of need. So the question is then, though, why do so many Christians, now many Christians would say they experience this. 
at least to some extent. Probably none of us experience it all the time. But there'd be a bunch of Christians and, and a, a bunch of you here today, you would say, yes, I actually experience some of these things to be true. I experience myself to find life when I go to God in prayer. I experience God to carry my burdens. I experience God to give me wisdom and direction when I need it. And I experience myself to actually enjoy, maybe not always, but I experience myself to, to often or many times enjoy connecting with God in prayer. So there would be a bunch of Christians like that here. Um, but then there'd be a bunch of other Christians who would say, I, I see the theory, it sounds great, like I love the invitation that I can go to God and that it's supposed to be this natural thing and that I love interacting with him. Uh, I see that theory, I see that theology, I see that he wants to carry my burdens, I see all these things, but to me, it just feels a lot like theory because my experience of prayer is I fall asleep, my mind wanders, I feel guilty about it constantly. So the question is, how do, we, how do we bridge the gap between sort of the ideal, this idea that, that prayer is so central to the Christian life that it's almost like breathing, that we are forever talking to God, because why wouldn't we want to talk to him and receive back from him this idea, this wonderful relationship that's there where we take Jesus with us literally into everything we do, and we find life when we connect him in prayer, because nowhere in the Bible is it painted a picture of prayer that it is supposed to be hard, or that it is supposed to uh, be something that is uh, boring or lifeless or anything like that. How do we bridge the gap between this ideal of what we see prayer is supposed to be, and our experience, and for, for lots of Christians, not everyone, people on this continuum between the real and the ideal, but it's an experience that lots of Christians have that prayer is hard. We don't, some people don't feel like they know how to pray. Some people feel like they don't, when they try to pray, it just doesn't work. And for many of them, it's not for lack of trying. I know lots of good Christians where they've tried all kinds of things and they've been disciplined and it still doesn't seem to work. And so I want to just look at four common hindrances to that, and it all ties into this home life series because I really believe that prayer isn't supposed to be a separate thing from life. It's supposed to be a part of your whole life, fueling, God's Spirit fueling you as you go into work and rest and play and relationships and all of that. So I want to just look at four common hindrances, and all of these overlap a lot with all of life, which is why in the home life series— so, number one common hindrance that, that hinders people's prayer from reaching that ideal where it's life-giving. And the number one, and these are not in any particular order, I don't say number one as in this is the number one reason why, I think there's probably lots of reasons why, and lots more than these four. I'm just looking at four common ones. But the first one I'll look at here today is when we divorce prayer from real-life action, from actually trying to follow Jesus, from actually... Uh, trying to love others, from actually trying to grow in character. When you divorce prayer from real-life action, where prayer just becomes, and again, these are all things we'll know, but I'm going to show you some scriptures in our heads, and yet I think lots of us sometimes do this. If you make prayer just this thing on its own by itself, 
not connected to a life where I'm actually trying to live my whole life for the glory of God, to various levels, I mean, nobody's perfect at that, but some desire in you that I actually want to live my whole life to follow Jesus and to love others, if you divorce prayer from that, if it just becomes a box on a checklist, and I do this to be a good Christian, but it's not connected to the rest of my life, it's not connected to motivating me to live for Jesus in the rest of my life, your prayer actually, it won't matter all the different techniques you use, your prayers will get stale. And the reason for that is because prayer isn't a formula at its heart, as we say often here at Southland, prayer is meant to be about relationship. And if you divorce the practice of prayer from relationship and serving the Lord and following Jesus, then the prayer will become empty. And Jesus himself talked about this. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, he's warning the disciples, and he's actually got some other prayers about hypocritical, or other words about hypocritical prayers earlier in this chapter, but I'm not going to touch on that here. But I'll just look at this one part. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So uh, back in those days, lots of the pagan religions, and in fact, even, you know, some of the pagan religions today, if you, if you look at them, uh, lots of uh, people, because you have human beings, and we have this thing inside of us that we, we know there's a God, and we know we should pray. So even in the pagan religions, they have these idea of gods and prayer. Um, but what would happen in a lot of these pagan religions is, and, and that continues to happen in pagan religions today, is you have people who are trying to manipulate the gods through prayer. The gods don't actually love you. You don't actually have a relationship with the gods. But there's something in the human spirit that says, I know I need to pray to, to the gods or to God. And so what people would do to get things from their gods is they would, they would make, you know, sacrif sacrifices of themselves. So they would say, you know, there'd be certain phrases. And if I say this phrase over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for many hours or sometimes even many days, then the idea was the more you do that, the more likely it is your God is going to look at you and have pity on you and give you what you need. Okay? And Jesus is saying that is the wrong way to look at prayer. Prayer is not about manipulating God to do what you want through repeating things over and over and over again or somehow hurting yourself. You know, often in those pagan religions, they would also add hurting themselves to that and repeating things and cutting and all these kinds of things. And Jesus says, God in heaven is actually your father. And I mean, if I think about it with my kids, the power is not in the phrases. The power is not in the length of time, even though there's importance in spending length of time for relationship, but I'm just talking about the power of prayer itself. You see, the power is not in the many words. It's not in how much you do it, right? The power is in the relationship. So if my kids come to me, my son Charlie comes to me and he says, um, uh, I need a granola bar. I'm really hungry. And can you imagine if, if the power was in him repeating a certain phrase over and over again? And he's like, I, now, sometimes they do repeat phrases over and over again. It drives me crazy. <laughs> Shut up. Anyway, um, <laughs> but imagine if that was how this system worked. So Charlie comes to me and he says, Dad, I'm really hungry. Can I have a granola bar? Nothing. Silence. Dad, can I have a, I'm really hungry. Can I have a granola bar? Dad, and he's going for maybe if I get to 300 or 400, he's going to, then that's what's going to move his heart. It's not. I'm his dad. He's hungry. Yes, you can have a granola bar. Don't tell mom. It's just about supper, right? Or whatever it is. <laughs> but 
course you can eat. Of course, I want to give it to you. The moment he asks, I already want to give because we have relationship. Now, again, that is not an excuse, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. That's not an excuse. Someone might say, oh, then I, all I ever need to do is spend two seconds with God because the power, well, there's more to prayer than just asking. If I just spent two seconds with my wife all the time, we wouldn't have much of a relationship, right? So, but my point here is the power is in the relationship. And there's no relationship if your heart isn't into following Jesus. If you think you're just doing prayer as something, yeah, I just do it because I, I should. I do it because I'm supposed to. But your heart isn't to follow him at work and with your family and to obey him and to seek him and to image him everywhere you go then it won't matter what tools you use in your prayer time, and tools are very wonderful, but they won't help you have an alive prayer life. But the moment your heart clicks to, I actually want to please God with my whole life, you will suddenly find power flowing into your prayer life. And I'll show you this in Scripture. Fantastic Scripture that we've gone to a couple of times here in the last couple of weeks. But John 15, about abiding. And I want to show you a couple of things here that are really powerful. It says this in John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So this is really, this is a key verse, right? And we know this as Christians. If you don't abide in Jesus, you can't do anything apart from Jesus. Okay, that's important. Now, obviously, this abide here certainly has to include prayer as part of that. Okay, so part of abiding in Jesus is prayer. That's really important. But most of us as Christians, when we think of this word abide, we actually limit this word to prayer so, or devotion. So what we think of it as, if you're spending time with me, then you're going to bear fruit because that's how you connect to the vine. But actually, that's only part of what he's saying here. And in fact, he goes on in this chapter to define exactly what he means by abiding. Would you like to see exactly what he means by abiding? Well, let's take a look. A few verses later, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. When, according to this definition, now obviously this includes praying. I'm not taking a part of the definition out. I'm just saying our definition of abiding is like this big when it should be this big. He actually specifically says that you are abiding in Jesus when you are obeying him. See, you might think I'm abiding with Jesus when I'm praying, which is part of it, but actually what Jesus defines here as abiding is when you're obeying. It's when you go out and live for Jesus like, go read the Sermon on the Mount. Be a peacemaker. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who persecute you. It's when you go out and live for Jesus, that's what he calls abiding. Let me read you the next verse. And I'm going to bring this back around and show you how prayer fits into that as well. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Notice, where the, notice the joy component here. Life is going to flow into you when you begin to live for him, okay? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. When you step out and begin to love people, to minister to people, to be generous to people, 
to forgive people, to tell people at work about Jesus because you care about them, when you begin to step out to love people, to repent of maybe lovelessness in your marriage, of neglect, and to step out, and because you love Jesus, you begin to step out and grow in love for people, in those moments when you are doing for Jesus, you are abiding and joy. You will begin to experience the Spirit in your life, and you're not even in your prayer time, necessarily. In fact, many of you actually know this to be true. Because I know from my own life, there's two great times when my uh, experience of God and my joy uh, and my prayer life explodes. Uh, one is when you're in crises. Now, maybe not the joy part in that one necessarily, but one time when we all know our prayer life explodes is when? When we're in a crisis, right? So someone gets sick that you love, uh, financial, you know, job, children stuff. You're in crisis, and suddenly it's like you have a compelling reason to pray. You have this desperation, and you go to God and you pray. And in those moments, you're just, you're, oh, and you just can feel so close to Jesus. Um, but there's another time when that same thing happens to us. Have you ever noticed this? Any time, have you ever had it happen where you sense God telling you to do something hard? And you wrestle with it for a little bit, and then you step out and you do it anyway because you love him? Isn't it true that when you do that, you're, you, you can feel the joy. You can actually feel him close to you. I've had this experience many times where he, he asks you to do something hard. It's like, I don't want to do it. And then you humble yourself, and you do the thing he's asking you to do, and in those moments, you experience the joy of the Lord, and you get to know God. But you're not even in your, you're not even in your devotions because abiding is so much bigger than devotions. But abiding is obeying Jesus. See, prayer, you have to see prayer in your life as a two-way street. And if you, make any, if you make your life about only one, it's going to get stale. If you take prayer out of your life, you're going to lose God's power and strength to live for him. But if you take the doing out of your life and think you're just going to be a good Christian because you pray a lot, your prayer life is going to get stale. Which is why for some people, Actually, the answer, for some people, when they're struggling in prayer, they just need to learn some, some, you know, tools or something like that, and that can be very helpful. Tools can be super helpful, okay? And we teach these things. But for a lot of people, if you want to know how to revolutionize your prayer life, start living more for Jesus. Focus on your life. Are you bringing Jesus into everything you do? Because the moment you step out, I'll tell you, you want to you experience Jesus? Step out and sacrificially do some acts of generosity, Go shock the pants off someone who is really in need and go do something sacrificially generous for them, preferably even do it secretly so they don't know who did it, and watch your joy in prayer increase. Start taking a risk to tell someone at work about Jesus and watch your prayer life come to life. I didn't change anything in my prayer life. I just started wanting to pray more. Yeah, because prayer can't be divorced from life. Work, play, rest, relationships, ministry, all of that. It's when you live for Jesus that now it's because prayer isn't magic. I remember when we were in uh, Korea for a year, first year of marriage, and there was this, uh, there was this uh, co-worker we had from Scotland, and uh, he was teaching at our school. At the time, there was just three of us foreign teachers there, and the rest were all Koreans. And I remember it just, I started to get this burden. I know I need to talk to this guy about Jesus. So the moment I got that in my heart, I need to talk to this guy about Jesus, 
the moment I got in my heart, I suddenly had my prayers tick up. I've got a reason to pray now because I got something. I'm on a mission for Jesus. So you start praying for opportunities. And your prayer life goes from stale and boring to exciting because my prayers are now launching me into something. Launching me into a, onto a mission. If you don't have mission, you, you get staleness. So I remember I started praying, and then the first thing I thought was, I've got to start doing stuff with this guy. So this is the fun part, because then you get ideas in prayer. And I started playing video games with him once a week. It was the greatest thing. I would leave LaDawn at home alone on the, at the apartment. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going on, I'm a missionary. I've got to go play video games with him. So... <laughs> We'd go and play FIFA World Cup at the time, whatever it was on, I think, PlayStation or something. I'm, I'm really not good at video games at all, but, but we would play this, and I would have a blast, and we started to get to know each other, and, then, and, I, and I could feel myself, something stirring in my heart, not because I changed any techniques, simply by being on mission. And now you start to pray, oh God, I want, I want an opportunity. And then I remember we were on a long drive, and LaDawn was with me. I'm sure she remembers this as well. And, uh, and I told her, I'm, I'm going in. We're in the back of this van for a few hours in Korea. I'm going to start talking about Jesus. And I remember just going into it, and I'm, not, I'm more of a blunt instrument. Everything I kind of do, it's not a lot of precision. It kind of feels forced. But here we go. We're going to talk about Jesus. So I kind of just blunt instrument. There was no kind of, ooh, like I've seen people who can just bring Jesus up in the most amazing ways. And it's like, that was so natural. And for me, it always feels like the conversation going one way and now, by the way, have you ever thought about Jesus? <laughs> Whoa, where would that come from? And we have this two-hour conversation, and then from there, it went to, we, there's many further conversations, and me inviting him to church and giving him books and talking, and he never, that I knew, became a, a Christian, not while, I, not while we were there. But my prayer life was alive. Why? Because prayer is a launching pad for you to give your whole life to Jesus, not just this thing on its own. It's supposed to be connected to your life. Now, the cool thing is, I want you to see the connection in this same passage between what happens when you begin to go on mission like that and you begin to see your life, your whole life, your work, your play, your relationships, ministry, all that sort of stuff as a place to worship God with all of it, not just your devotional life, but all of it, when that happens, Jesus himself says that your prayer life will take off. If we go back a few verses before this, verse 7, it says this. If you abide in me. Now look at that, if. Now remember, what is abiding? Now you have to get out of your mind. If you abide in me means if you're in your devotions, because in this chapter, that, I mean, that's part of it, yes. But here he's specifically focusing on obeying. So if you are on mission, if you're obeying me, you're trying to live out the Sermon on the Mount at work, you're turning the other cheek, you're not taking advantage of people, you're generous, all these things, you're hospitable. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now look at this. The second thing is that ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Your prayer life suddenly has power. It's not, a, it's not just a technique. Tools are great in prayer. But you want your prayer life to come alive? Start living with generosity and hospitality and evangelizing and forgiving and trying to bring Jesus into your family and trying to bring his love into your meetings. You start to do that and your prayer life is going to begin to take off. Why? Because prayer and life are a two-way street. When you are living for Jesus, 
life will flow into your prayers. And when you are praying to Jesus, power will flow into your life. They go hand in hand. Life and prayer go hand in hand. Number two. Oh, by the way, I should just say this. This is one of the reasons. I don't want to forget this. Uh, this is one of the reasons I have loved. In fact, this is some of the stuff I have learned in the Abide Journal. It's one of the reasons I love what Stephen and the discipleship team have put together with the Abide Journal. You'll notice in the Abide Journal as you're going through it, every week there's a weekly action step. And the whole point is that we're not just praying and then leaving. The whole point is I'm praying about things I want to grow in and mission I want to go on. And one of the action steps every week is pray about loving someone this week. Can you imagine if that was a habit in our lives for the rest of our lives that every Christian would pray about something they're trying to grow better in in their character every week and one thing they want to do to step out and bless other people, to love someone, to be generous, and we would make those things habits in our lives? I'll tell you what would happen to your prayer life. Your prayer life would come alive. Your whole life would come alive. Number two, hindrance. That keeps the ideal, the real, from being the ideal. This idea that prayer is this wonderful, amazing, powerful thing, but the experience of too many Christians that it is a lifeless, boring, dry thing is having too rigid views of what prayer has to look like. And there's many things we could talk about here, but a lot of this is put on people when people like myself, and I've done this so often over the years, and other well-meaning people put their own personal preferences onto everyone else. I'm amazed when you look at Scripture how wide open it is on what your prayer life should exactly look like. Like, if you actually go through it, now there's lots of things we know that have to be in there. Like, we know we want to hear God's voice. We know we want to be thankful. We know we want to intercede for people we love and for kings and all those in authority. So the Bible, sprinkled throughout, there's all these things we see prayer is. But you read through Paul's letters, and it's fascinating to me, because I've been, I've been going through them recently, because I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm going through Paul's letters, and I'm looking for, where's the chapter where he breaks down, this is what your devotional life should look like. And I'm amazed that it's not there. That prayer is vitally important, oh, and that prayerlessness will kill you because you'll disconnect from the power source, it's there. But exactly how it will look for every person in all times and all places is not there, which is very instructive for us because what it means is that there's some basic tools and things we all want to do, but how those things get practiced might look different. Same as in marriage. I'm amazed, you know, or not really that amazed, I guess, but it's interesting when you look at different marriages, there are certain things that every marriage needs to have. A married couple needs to talk, right? I mean, that's, yeah, a married couple needs to talk and hopefully not just yelling, right? <laughs> a married couple needs to have fun together. Uh, they need to, I mean, sometimes they got to do tasks together, right? And these are some things, like, there's different things that you do, and every married couple has some of these things in them. Every couple needs all of them, but if you look at how it expresses itself in every couple, it looks totally different. Some couples spend way more time on the fun side and less time on the talking, and other couples sp spend way more time on the talking and less time on the fun side. There's all kinds of differences, and it works its way out differently. And I would say the same is true in prayer. We all must pray. We need to pray. We need to hear God's voice. We need God's word. We need to some of these things. We need, you know, a little bit of journaling and some of these, you know, all these different things. But how that's actually going to look in your life, how it's going to get expressed, 
it's going to look different. And I'll just use one example just to show you an example, but there's many ways this goes. And I, I'm hoping to release people to really seek God in ways that are life-giving, to use the tools but use them in life-giving ways. So, for example, I often think of, for me, a big one has always been the when. When should I spend time with God? And for the last hundred years, lots of evangelical leaders and pastors have stated very boldly, it should be in the morning. And I've often said that too, which, because I love mornings. So, I mean, I even read this last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is this amazing guy who I just respect so much, and he always said, he said, you should have your spiritual food before your physical food. And that just makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You should eat your spiritual food before you eat your physical food. Um, and it just sounds like almost like if you don't do it that way, then it's wrong. But the fact of the matter is, other people and other traditions look at it very differently. I think of uh, a guy by the name of James Wilder, who has done, he does a lot of brain research and, on spirituality and things like that. And he would say, and he tells people who read his books and stuff and go to his conferences, that, it, that you should do it in the evening. That actually, according to brain science, the best time to do your devotion and prayer time is in the evening. And he would point back in history to times in history when that's what Christians have traditionally done is in the evening. And so a lot of Christians go, well, which one is it? Is it morning or evening? And the answer is, the Bible doesn't tell us other than to say pray without ceasing, which means the morning is a great time to talk to Jesus, and the evening is also a great time to talk to Jesus. But if you get all rigid, I remember I used to share, I, I've been repenting this weekend, uh, Marty Gunter was here last night, and he was laughing at me, and at 6 o'clock is a little bit of a smaller service, so I can point people out. But, uh, and then I point them out to all of you on Sunday morning again. Because <laughs> he was with me the whole time when I was doing young adults, and I used to share this, this picture with young adults all the time. And here was the picture. The picture was, I would tell the young adults, um, if a soldier, you know, a knight in medieval times would get up in the morning and go into battle all day without his armor on and then come back and put his armor on before he goes to bed, would that be a smart thing? And we'd all go, because with that picture, you go, <sighs> I mean, with that picture, it almost goes too far. It's like, you'd be stupid to pray at night. <laughs> you know what the only problem with pictures like that are? First of all, they're not in the Bible. And second of all, there's a lot more to prayer than just going to war. I mean, thank goodness. I mean, when you think of yourself as a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. Isn't that true? <laughs> it's a lot more of the Christian life than just being at war, right, all the time. Um, so pictures like that actually aren't helpful because for lots of people, I remember for years I would tell people, I would have well-meaning people come to me and they would say, like guys who are working, at, like for example, a shift, shift work or something, starting work at four in the morning or five in the morning. And I'd tell them, you, first thing, and these guys would be falling asleep and trying to get up at three sometimes. I think of a couple of guys. And, uh, and in the end, they suffer. Why? Because they're trying to do something the way other people do it, but the Bible doesn't say you have to do it that way. And this brings up a third point, which is guilt. Toxic guilt and very rigid views of how devotions have to look mixed with toxic guilt will actually get you into this stale place where prayer is disconnected from life and you can't get close to God because all you ever do is feel guilty for not being adequate. And I'm going to share with you a ridiculous story, but it's a true story, unfortunately, from my own life. And I know most of you will not be this extreme in the way you feel guilt, perhaps, but 
I think it's instructive of what can happen to many Christians to various levels. But when I was in university, so four summers in university, I spent tree planting, three in BC and the last one in Manitoba. And in those days, I had a very rigid view. I, I knew dev- devotions are important, and they, they are. We have to have this launching pad. That's going to be my last point. My next point, I'm, we're going to bring this all together. How do we have a prayer life that it's not just prayer and then life, but a prayer life where my devotional time with the Lord launches me into a life of walking with God and everything I do? That's the goal. But I had this view that was very rigid that if you're a good Christian, then the then you spend the first hour of your day always with God. And there's not, you know, by the way, there's lots of people that live that way and it's awesome and it's life-giving for them. And it was for me most of the year. But then summer would come and I'd go tree planting. And every year it would be the same thing. We'd get up very, very early, uh, usually five o'clock in the morning, we'd be having breakfast and then we'd be off working in, in, you know, in hideous swarms of bugs and heat all day long, working like dogs, and we'd come back utterly exhausted. And every year the same thing would happen I would try to get up earlier than five to have my devotions, and every year I would utterly fail. It would take me a week or two. Uh, probably two is pushing it. It would take me a few days, and I would basically give up. But my problem was, because of my guilt complex of how this should look, I just felt like a bad Christian because I couldn't get up earlier than I was. And because I felt like a bad Christian, instead of taking the opportunity that God's with me even in the mountains tree planting, I just felt subconsciously God doesn't like me because I'm inadequate because I just can't sacrifice enough. And then what you do is you end up turning off from God entirely, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. And then instead what happens is you just get yourself separate from God and by the end of summer, you've become this terrible person and every summer you just regret and I'd come home and fall and have all this repentance of I became this and this and this and this and, and it was this horrible cycle. So in my fourth summer, I decided I'm going to fix this. I am going to fix this. When something isn't working, you know what you do? You keep doing it, but you do it harder. <laughs> so that's what I did. I got accountability partners, and I said, this summer, I am going to be a good Christian. And here's how I'm going to do it. I will, and I'm going to tell people so that they hold me accountable, even though they're far away from me, but I'll check in with them every now and then. But I'm going to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to spend time reading my Bible and praying for an hour before breakfast. So, day one. Crank up the wind-up alarm clock, had a hammer on two bells, real old school, drove the camp nuts. I always had to turn it off very quickly, or they were like, Darkson, shut it off. <laughs> turn over four o'clock, get up. Now, you have to remember, within a couple of days of being out in the bush, living in a tent, the humidity, the various things, everything is slightly damp. It's very disgusting work. And I would get up in my sleeping bag, it would be pitch dark, because you're way out in the boonies. Like, you are far out in the boonies. Pitch dark, get out your flashlight, you're exhausted because you've been working hard all day the day before, and you try to have your devotions, and I would start by reading my Bible, because that's what you do, and every time, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating if I say I made it 10 minutes, within five minutes. So I tried that a few times, I'm like, okay, this isn't working, this isn't working, it's going sideways already. I'm going to get outside of my tent. That's what I'm going to do this year. New thing. So, I get up. I'm always falling asleep in my tent four in the morning because it's dark. I'm going to get outside of my tent. I'm going to do my devos out there. Now, I've got to be careful because I can't really read my Bible out in the pitch dark, and I can't walk around with a flashlight because people are going to get ticked at me. So I'm going to find in the pitch dark here, I'm going to try without tripping over logs and the tents around me, I'm going to find a little space where I can 
kind of pace back and forth, just in this little tiny space. You can't hardly see, literally some days, if there was no moon, you could hardly see the, your hand in front of you. And there was only one problem with this idea, is that our camp was literally overrun with black bears. I mean, it was so, it, to, just to give you an idea, we would, in Manitoba, they don't like cutting lots of logging roads as much as possible, so we would literally helicopter most days to the planting site. So they'd come into the camp, they'd pick us up. Most days, you would see three or four black bears just, with, just in the tree line running off because they were scared of the helicopter. They were everywhere. One, I remember one day, I think we saw six, and we actually had a black bear go into a guy's tent one, one night while he was in there. Like, they were just everywhere. So now I'm out here in a pitch black and I actually have no problems staying awake because I'm spending my entire time praying to Jesus to keep me safe. <laughs> Literally, I'm... What was that noise? Is that a bear? Please, let it not be a bear. And I tried this for a few days and finally I just gave it up again. You know, if I could go back now, I look at the rigidity of some of those things, I look at the guilt in some of those things, and I see things like that plaguing many Christians. This obsession over the inadequacy of the devotional life, which actually keeps you from walking with God in your whole life. And if I could go back, if someone, I wouldn't actually want to go back in time and live that time over, but but if I was giving someone advice, if, I, if, if my old self in the past came and asked for advice, I would, just say, I would just blow a couple things out of the water immediately. I would say, first of all, get one of those Christian guys. There's always one or two in every crew. Get one of those Christian guys that you know and set up twice a week, once a week, whatever they'll give you. Go sit in the, in the eating tent in the evening and do it together. That way you don't fall asleep. Read a chapter of the Bible together. Try to apply it to your lives and then pray for each other. But except in those days, I wouldn't have considered that devotions because devotions has to be on your own. But why? Why can't I get the Bible into me and pray in ways that give me life and keep me awake? And if I could do that once or twice a week, and if I can't do an hour in the morning, what if I tried 15 minutes and just memorized some scripture? I look back on it now, and I could have taken memory work. I mean, when you're tree planting, you're on your own pretty much the entire day out there working. I could have spent a bag up doing memory work. It would have renewed me, would have connected me to God. But none of these things were available to me because all I did was, all I could feel was inadequate. And so one of the things I want to encourage you in is instead of feeling guilty, Hebrews 4.16 says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Take that Bible verse and mash your guilt with it every time you feel inadequate to talk to God because you're not doing enough. Every time you feel guilty, I can't talk to God before this meeting because I didn't talk to him enough this morning. You can talk to him right now. Hebrews 4.16, devil. Hebrews 4.16, I'm coming with confidence before the throne of grace, which brings us now, by the way, I'm talking to a staff person, speaking of crea uh, creativity and not being overly rigid, I was talking to a staff person this past week, someone who is very disciplined with her uh, devotions, has raised uh, three great kids, I think, anyway. The other ones are off the map. No, I think she only has three. But anyway, uh, uh, and she just said when her kids, she's very disciplined with her devotional life, but when her kids were real little, she struggled, as many moms struggle. So she still needed structure, but she was very creative instead of being rigid, so she can play the piano. She said, you know, every day for half an hour, I would sit at the piano and play worship music and sing to Jesus, and, and the kids uh, weren't allowed to bother me then. 
uh, and she would play, and I just thought, that's amazing. Instead of being rigid and feeling guilty, come boldly before the throne of grace. Which brings me to the last point, which is what hinders people from having a life of prayer that fills them with power and joy to take Jesus with them everywhere. And lack of structured disciplines that keep you focused on prioritizing Jesus will keep you from living with Jesus everywhere. What do I mean by that? As I've been telling you in this whole message series, discipline on itself does not earn you something with God. The pagans can be disciplined. They can speak many words to their gods and have it be meaningless. You can have discipline for the sake of discipline and have it not earn you anything with God. Having said that, to cast off discipline is to mean that you won't prioritize the things that really matter. Because isn't that what disciplines do? Disciplines and habits and routines, structures, protect the things we say matter to us. For example, I have, and some routines are easier than others, but the point of the matter is habits and routines protect what matters. So for example, my family matters to me. I want to prioritize time with them. One of the routines that protects that is I go home for supper every day. Now that routine doesn't see, doesn't, is not hard for me to do because I'm hungry every day. <laughs> but every day, I go home and I sit down and I spend time with my children and my wife. That is a routine. Okay? And it's a routine that we, most of us don't even think about, and so we don't think of it as a routine or a structure. But that is a structure. It's built into my life, and it ensures that what's important to me, my children and my wife, remain important to me. I remember seeing uh, an illustration done by a man, uh, Stephen Covey, years and years ago. And he was giving a talk on keeping first things first. So he had a big jar, and then at at the side he had uh, a container of sand, he had a bunch of bigger rocks and a bunch of smaller rocks. And then he said, how are we going to fit all of these things into the jar? So first thing he did is he poured all the sand into into the bigger container, then he put all the little rocks in the container, and then at the end he tried to put the big rocks, and they didn't even come close to fitting in the container. He said, it it doesn't look to me like I can fit everything in. And he said, just like most of you guys feel like you can't fit everything into your lives. But he said, let me show you a different way of doing it. And he dumped everything out. And this time, he put the big rocks in first. He put the big rocks in. Then he put all the little rocks in. And then at the end, he poured the sand in. And the sand went and filled in all the cracks. And everything fit into the jar. He said, I got everything into this jar when before I couldn't. But the reason I got everything into the jar is because I put first things first. I put the big things, the things that most matter to me, the priorities, I put those in first, and then I put the, little, the lesser things, and at the end, I let the little things, the meaningless things maybe, but the things I want, whatever they are, I let those fill in what was left and everything fit. The fact of the matter is, if you prioritize something, if you actually say, 
family is important, or God is important, or whatever is important, if you don't structure it in, structures protect it. It's not that the structures themselves make you any better of a Christian, but if you don't put structures in to protect what you say is important, your life will be overrun by the little things, and you'll end up living your life, and your heart says, my family was important, God was important, but your time shows that those things were not important. It, I mean, even, and again, the point isn't that people look at your disciplines and say, the, the goal is not at the end of your life that someone says, look, what an amazing prayer life they had. Now, that's not bad. If they, someone says that about you, great. The point is not that someone at the end of your life says, what a great prayer life you had. The point is that people look at you and see Jesus. They're not going, wow, that guy prayed hours a day. Now, they might say that, and that's, well, that's fine if they do. That's great. And some people are called to pray more. There's no question. But the point is not that they look at us and see how disciplined you were. The point is they look at you and see Jesus. But in order for them to see Jesus, it's like my body. You can't see my bones, okay? But if I didn't have my skeleton, if I didn't have my bones, I could have the same heart, the same brain, I can love my wife, I can love Jesus, but all I am today is a puddle on the floor. If I don't have bones, isn't that true? That's a pile of mush. I can't preach to you, I can't do anything, I'm a pile of mush. The fact of the matter is, some of your lives are essentially a pile of mush. You have a heart that actually does genuinely love Jesus. You have a brain with talents and gifts that you want to serve Jesus, but you have no bones in the structure of your life that give substance, that allow you to move forward and actually do something about your priorities. So the structure is not something you spend all your time feeling guilty about. The structure is something that protects and launches you out. I see increasingly, and I know there's different pictures for what prayer is. You don't have to pick mine. For me, one of the things that motivates me to have structured, scheduled times with the Lord in a rhythm, as I've talked about, is that I see my structured times as my reminder. If I don't have those times, it feels like I'm walking in quicksand. If I have those times, it feels like I've got a launching pad to launch off into the rest of my life and bring Jesus with me everywhere I go. I don't want, just, I don't want Jesus just in my devotional time. Yuck. But if I don't have a devotional time, I won't take him with me anywhere. So structure is something we build. Now, a couple of things to say about structure. First of all, your structures should be creative and life-giving. As I said before, no two people are the same. Your structure should be creative and life-giving. You saw what happened, you know, with my ridiculous tree planting story. Your structures should be creative and life-giving. Make them work for where you're at. But still structured, it's still scheduled, it's something you do, it's a habit, it's a routine. Super important. Experiment with how, okay? Like I've said to you earlier in this series, couples who read the Bible out loud to each other before bed each night. I've heard now a bunch of couples in our church that do that. What a great way to get the Word of God in you. That counts, right? It doesn't just have to be by yourself, it could be with other people. I know tons of guys in this church who have a, a workout buddy. They like to work out with a friend, you know, a couple of times a week or two or three times a week. 
Some of those, some of you who struggle with your Bible reading and prayer, why not add half an hour to your workout time? Because that workout time is what? It's a structure, it's a discipline that protects what is important to you, which is your exercise and health. What if you added, let's read the Bible together and pray for each other and share before we work out together? You have just put a structure in there that is protecting something that allows you to launch off and live your whole life for Jesus. Hospitality and generosity. Experiment with the when. Daniel prayed three times a day. Doesn't tell us how long, but he broke it down into three times a day. Maybe you need to meet with God on a scheduled time at lunch or after supper. Break it down. Hospitality and generosity. And lastly, it has to be doable. I want to give you a benchmark, but I just, you have to be so careful about a benchmark. This is not a moral law. But your structures have to be doable. If you reach too high, you won't, you'll just give up. Nobody can make, you can't make, apart from having a near-death experience, very few people can radically change their lives overnight. So rather than going out and just changing your entire life, you want to make small, doable changes and move in a direction where the structures in your life are assisting you to love Jesus with your whole life. Now, sometimes Christians ask me, how much is enough? How much is enough? And they feel guilty. They always think they should be doing more rather than taking their eyes off their structures and focusing on life, which is what it's all about. So I just want to, I was talking with Stefan this week, and I just want to give a, a benchmark. This is not a moral law. The Bible does not tell you how much to pray a day. It doesn't tell you. But some of you just always feel guilty. You're neurotic. I don't know if I'm doing enough. I don't know if I'm doing enough. Sometimes just having a benchmark can just set you free. I don't need to think about that anymore. I just need to love Jesus my whole life. So I think wisdom, not a moral law, I think a wise principle, kind of a rule of thumb, is if you average kind of 30 to 60 minutes a day, a bunch of days a week, I know most Christians don't make it seven days a week, and that's okay. But what if you, if you're, if now, if you're over 60 minutes, you might be someone who finds so much life with Jesus, and you are with him two hours a day in prayer. That's amazing. Keep going. I'm not telling you to, whoa, I got to cut back. If you love praying to Jesus two hours a day, do not cut back. Add me and my children and my wife to your prayer list, please. <laughs> Thank you. As I'm cutting it back. If you are under that, maybe it's time to reach a little bit. Say, I, I need to push myself a little more. I need to build a little bit of structure in my life so that I'm thinking about God more, so that I can go out and bring him with me in everything I do. And if you're at 30 minutes and you just feel connected to Jesus and you're living your life for him and you're witnessing to people, don't feel bad about adding. Just say, I've, I'm connected to him all day long and my 30 minutes is launching me into that, that's great. Because it's not about more, 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 more. It's actually about bringing Jesus into every single thing we do. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to get you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. Different groups of people here today. Some of you already have a great structure and rhythm devotional life, you don't need to think any more about it today. 
God is not telling you you got to change it, you got to add to it. You already have a, you have a solid foundation. What God's telling you is maybe you need to now think about generosity, hospitality, evangelism. How is your well-structured devotional life launching you into a life lived for Jesus? That's what's important for you now today. And then there's a group of other people here today. You're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You don't have a structure. You don't have a good enough structure for launching you into the rest of your life. Maybe today God is talking to you, here's a new routine, a new habit to put into your life. Some need to think about structure. Some need to think about bigger than structure. But whichever one you are today, the worship team's going to lead us in worship, and I want you just to let God speak to you. Which group are you in? And what's your next step to living your whole life for Jesus Christ?
Thank you, Jesus, for being our shepherd. We want at this church be a family of people who lives our entire lives for your glory. At work, at home, at play, at rest, and ministry. I just pray that you would wash away guilt where people are just feeling guilty all the time, that you would take that away, that you would take that burden off and fill us with hope instead and help us to build wonderful structures that will help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.